This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Joanne Cheng. Hey, Joanne. Hi, Ben. It's great to see you. How's it going? Things are pretty good in Denver. Nice. How's Boston? Boston is beautiful today, actually. That's good. It's enjoying like the last days of summer? Yes, most definitely. Excellent. Cool. So it seems like you're uh, sort of on the conference circuit these days. Yes. Yes. Talk about that. What are you doing? I just came back from Berlin. I gave a workshop at your camp, um, which I gave an intro to D3 workshop. Next month, or no, this month, uh, I'm doing another sort of intro to D3, but kind of doing creative visualizations and talking about like how companies have created these really creative and interactive visualizations for the web using D3. uh, And that's for the AirConf conference. Um, So it's going to be like me talking on Google Hangout. Oh, AirPair? AirPair, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. As uh, terrible as it is, I've kind of forgotten how many conferences I actually have to speak at for the next couple of months. Mm Mm-hmm. I have an unannounced conference uh, in October, uh-huh. which I probably shouldn't talk about um, okay. because this person may get upset with me. It's under embargo? Yes. Gotcha. They don't want to release the the enormous news that Joanne Chang is keynoting their conference? I'm not keynoting the conference. <laughs> okay. Why not? Because uh, I've only been speaking for, I think, about a year. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need a lot more experience before I can actually keynote. And the concept of like opening a conference and like setting the mood for a conference is absolutely terrifying for me. So mm. how, so what, what do you feel like you've learned? Is your speaking style getting better? Yes. Yes. I've learned how to organize my thoughts into stories, like a beginning, middle and end mm. kind of have more of a flow to when I'm explaining something, even if I'm explaining something technical, having an intro middle and an end kind of keeps people engaged and I think helps people retain knowledge a lot better. Mm. And I, I've, no, I've started noticing other people's talks. Like I've noticed a lot of things that they kind of do to maybe, I guess, make their own talk worse. Like hmm. they kind of downplay themselves or mm-hmm. they kind of start off with like a lot of the boring details. They'll correct themselves during the talk. And, you know, the content's really good, but they're kind of missing that storytelling element of just, you know, going out there and just telling your story and, yeah, leaving it as is rather than, going and correcting yourself and making sure the audience knows that you've messed up. Yeah, totally. I sort of ta- talked ad nauseum about some of this stuff, but like the pre-apologizing thing, mm-hmm. like walking up and like starting to tell people why the talk isn't going to be very good or how you didn't get enough sleep or things like that. It's like a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. I mean, people paid money to go to the conference. Right. And I hate that, like the anti-sales pitch. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah, I know you're in this room and you're going to sit here for like 40 minutes, but like, here's why it's not going to be really good. It's like, why would you do this? Like, why, why, do you want me to be convinced that it's not going to be good? Like, what's your goal with that saying that? I guess just lowering yeah. expectations, but I don't like it. But yeah, like explaining something to people and like having to structure a talk really solidifies a lot of concepts in technology. And I, I really enjoy putting together talks. It's a little exhausting, but it definitely enforces everything I'm learning. Yeah, I'm sure. Have, do you have a favorite uh, place you've gotten to visit so far? Um, probably Berlin. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. Oh, I love no. Berlin. That was where I discovered that like public transit could be really, really good. I know. Like even late at night, the trains come like every 10, 20 minutes mm-hmm. and like 20 minutes really late at night. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I went to Barcelona this year, actually. I, I totally forgot about that. Mm. Uh, that was that was pretty amazing. Barcelona is an amazing city. That's awesome. That's on my list. I haven't been there yet. 
Are you going to Baruca this year? Um, maybe. Maybe. It's just on my on my general, like, I got to get to Spain at some point list. Mm. No specific plans. It's fantastic. The food there is amazing. Cool. So let's talk about my least favorite language ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not one of my favorites, yeah. to be honest. But you could do a lot of cool stuff with it. No, totally. So I want to talk about D3 a little bit. Okay. So you've been teaching like an intro to D3 thing, and it sounds like maybe like this is a, another sort of more advanced course kind of thing coming up at these conferences? Uh, yes. So um, D3 is a JavaScript framework, or kind of, it's more like a DSL. It's used to bind data to DOM elements. So it's kind of viewed as like a visualization framework, mm -hmm. but it's not exactly a visualization framework. It's It really has its essence. It's just a way to modify the DOM. Modify the DOM. Okay, but the, but the goal is to create something visually to show people. Yes, yes. Um, that's how it's most commonly used these days, yes. Yeah. Why do you like it? I like it because it's really flexible. Um, you can create a lot of really interesting visualizations for the web with it because like, you, you're not really bound by any certain technology. Uh, D3 is most commonly used with SVG, but... Mm -hmm. Because like you know you can kind of modify SVG really quickly. There's a lot of possibilities. Pretty much anything that you imagine in your head, you can translate to SVG and DOM elements. Nice. And so I really like that flexibility of D3. Is it a, is it a pain to whip something up kind of quick and dirty? Is do you find like has, there's like a fair amount of overhead? Like if I were like going to do something in like Excel kind of thing, I just want like a bar chart or like a line graph or something. Yes, there to do something really simple like a bar chart or a line graph, you basically have to type a lot of code yeah. um, versus something like high charts, which is another common JavaScript graphing library. You can just basically create this uh, JavaScript object, pass it into this method, and then boom, you have a graph on your, your page. Yeah. D3, your steps would have to be like, you you know get all the data, you create these rectangles. Um, mm -hmm. If you're creating a bar graph, you create these rectangles, and then you have to create an axis, axis for x-axis, and then you have to create a y-axis. And then if you want tooltips, you have to handle mouse over events, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's a lot of overhead. So is it a little bit more flexible, but at the cost of a little more work to get things done, would you say? Is that a fair characterization? Yes. yes. But there's a lot of benefits to even creating like a bar graph with D3. Um, for instance, like we have a lot of designers here at ThoughtBot who have like a very specific image of what they want a site to look like. Mm. And when you use something like high charts, um, high charts is kind of difficult to style and you know... Like when you go to a web page, you see a high charts graph and you know it's a high charts graph. Totally. I know it's definitely annoyed some of the designers I've worked with. So when you create something with D3, you can uh, attach classes to all the elements that you're creating. And so it's a lot easier to style. And you can also style things using CSS, mm -hmm. which, you know, you abstract all the styles away from your JavaScript code, which is also really nice. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, I've experienced that phenomenon you're talking about where it's like this site that's otherwise fairly beautiful and there's this like giant ugly chart in it. It's like, yep. why is that? Oh, okay, I see. This is like a prepackaged something or other that just got spat out. Yep. Kind of kills the vibe. It does. And like, we get a lot of projects that are pretty much just charts. Like, we get a lot of requests for like these dashboard projects because mm. they're kind of getting more and more popular. Yeah. So, you know, you have, you're paying a designer to design your site. You don't want to be looking at a bunch of graphs that like just kind of clashes with whatever the designer has in mind. Yeah. Is it slowish to render a bunch of these things in the browser? Uh, you mean SVG elements? Yeah, I guess so. Um, it could be. But with D3 also, you can control how many SVG elements you're spitting out. Hmm. If you attach a lot of, like if you have thousands of SVG elements on your page and you're attaching mouse handlers to all of them, you're not going to have a very performant web page. Yeah. Um, things are going to be a little laggy. Do you have a, a preferred uh, way of getting people started in, in D3? 
There's a really good book called, I think it's Interactive Visualizations for the Web uh, by Scott Murray. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best book uh, if you want to get started with D3. Yeah. It kind of goes into detail, like what every method does in, in the D3 DSL framework. Gotcha. Does it talk a lot about like information design too? Um, not so much, actually. Is that, would you say that's almost more important? Yes, sometimes. Um, it's complicated because we have a lot of designers here who also have their own thoughts about information design. Mm. Um, that's, that's kind of a whole other beast, information design. I feel like they can be learned, you can probably learn them separately and then just kind of combine them together at the end. Sure. I, did, I saw a repo on your GitHub. You're doing some dot file analysis. Uh, yes. Can you talk about that? So I have been going through every repo on GitHub through the GitHub API and basically looking for any uh, repository that has the word uh, dot files or basically dot character files or uh, emacs.d configuration mm -hmm. and just seeing what people are using in their dot files. And it was originally sparked by uh, kind of this curiosity to see how many people are using emacs versus how many people are using vim. And I thought, you know, it might be kind of cool to try to find this data by going through GitHub repositories since mm -hmm. posting dot files is a popular thing. So I haven't collected every repository yet. I think I'm missing about a year and a half of information. It's been taking me a long time to collect things. Hmm. But um, so far, like, Vim has kind of beat out Emacs by a lot, which I found pretty interesting. Um, also interesting is kind of people who have other languages in their dot .files. Um, like, I saw JavaScript, PHP, I guess, you know, typical scripting languages. Ruby is pretty popular in dot .files. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so far I've just been kind of collecting the data and just kind of making really simple bar graphs, just seeing what people are using in their dot .files. But I am also curious to see like what Vim users have in their GitHub accounts, like what kind of languages they use on mm. GitHub versus what kind of languages Emacs users use. So, yeah, it's kind of sparking a lot of interesting questions in my head. That's cool. Yeah, and I've experienced that with, as soon as I like do some sort of data analysis, you get some initial information out and that immediately sparks like more questions. Mm -hmm. Like when I, especially when I like analyze like stuff about our business on Upcase, it's like, okay, here's like some interesting things. Okay, wow, now I really want to know like the next level of that, like dive deeper or take a left and figure something else out. That's really the right way to approach data analysis. I feel mm. um, sometimes like when I'm working with uh, people or um, they sometimes just kind of hand me this whole bunch of data and just kind of expect me to find like an answer. But I, you have to kind of start asking yourself simple questions first. And it's an iterative process, much like most of development. Yeah, totally. Can I ask what kind of stuff you're discovering on, on Upcase? Um, well, the last thing I looked at was uh, the breakdown of signups. So mm -hmm. like in a given month when people sign up, where are they going? And mm -hmm. then given that, like what is the expected lifetime value of those various people? So like roughly how much revenue do we expect to get from the people that signed up in the month kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And that was really fascinating to see because we hadn't we hadn't broken that down before for whatever reason and so it was really interesting to see that like we were we were basically moving people into like our lowest plans in general mm. um and so there was an overwhelming preference for the cheapest plan and so mm -hmm. we said is that really the preference or like are we sort of pushing people in that direction and so that led us to like a redesign of the pricing page and led us to like restructure some of the plans with the goal of you know getting people to spring from sort of more more i guess mm -hmm. um because we thought like our best stuff was sort of locked up in the higher plans and a lot of people mm -hmm. were coming into the lower plans and then they weren't seeing the best of what we had the off to offer and so we did a redesign and changed the plan structure a bit and successfully moved actually a lot of people out uh, in a given month up to higher plans where they get to see more of what we have and get more value 
Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's awesome that, you know, you got to actually perform an action after answering your own question. Totally. Um, that's really that's a really satisfying feeling. It is. And like the, all the metrics, like basically once we deployed those new plans and the pricing page, like the metrics all immediately like jumped noticeably within like a couple of days. They all mm. started trending much better uh, and has continued since. So it was like very satisfying to sort of find the right lever to push that had like a really large impact. And it was just kind of based on like, I just went up in the conference room one day. I was like, I wonder what the signups looked like for the last month and just broke it down. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating. I don't want to turn this into an upcase uh <laughs> data analysis uh, yeah. episode. Yeah. But I was I was always kind of curious about like trying to predict when people would drop their uh, subscription. Yeah. Kind of tracking what kind of products they're downloading or kind of the rate that they're downloading products. And I started on that a couple of weeks ago mm. uh, on an investment day, but I haven't had a chance to finish it yet. Yeah. Are you familiar with like regressions? Um, mildly. Yeah, I'm, same. I'm also mildly familiar, but like as far as I understand it, and I might butcher this a bit, uh, the rough idea of a regression is given a bunch of input variables uh, and an output variable, mm -hmm. you determine roughly a curve that fits those things. So you can mm -hmm. figure out how important each input is in affecting the output. Mm -hmm. So um, to translate this into upcase, what I've actually wanted to do is figure out a regression for, like figure out like five things we think contribute to people getting value out of upcase. So mm -hmm. it's like downloading a product, watching a screencast, you know, doing an exercise, getting a review from a peer, posting on the forum, things like this. Like pick like a handful of things that we think make people get value and therefore stick around. Mm -hmm. And then actually run a regression on the historical data and figure out which of these things have the most impact on people's likeliness to churn. And then saying, okay, well, the most important thing is that they, you know, do an exercise or that they log into the form or something like that. And then we can sort of help drive people to do that action and mm -hmm. actually check our math basically and see like when of, of people that do take this action, now that we're pushing more of them through, do we see that their likelihood to churn drops? I would love to actually like, up, like throw some math at that problem. Because right now we sort of do it as like a general like, well, we want to activate people and we want them to do, you know, get a bunch of value from the service, but it's, it's, it's sort of ad hoc as opposed to like a, we have a model that we've built that, that predicts you know, with 85% confidence that if someone does this, they'll do this. Mm. No, it sounds like a really great idea. I, I don't know. I, I never see people talking about this like in like terms of SaaS, like SaaS businesses. I don't think I've ever seen like a improve your SaaS churn rate with you know, a linear regression or something. Um, and I don't know why, because it seems like maybe it doesn't work or maybe just no one does it for whatever reason. It's sort of putting a very general solution to a lot of different products who have like their own different environments. Like, I guess like how we analyze data would be a lot different than how other services would analyze data. Yeah. So I guess it is really difficult um, to, yeah, to generalize it for sure. But I'm just surprised I haven't seen anyone talking about that technique. So I'd like to try mm -hmm. it ourselves and see if it, if it works. And if it does, then we can talk about it and that'll be awesome. Yeah. But it, I think a lot of it relies on your ability to predict which things actually do impact. Mm -hmm. Because if you pick five inputs, in fact, have extremely low effect on churn, you'll, well, you'll probably, I guess, discover that and sort of look for other ones. But mm -hmm. you're right that you will need sort of an intimate knowledge of your business and to be able to make good guesses as to what actually affects uh, the output. Yep. Yep. Cool. So have you been uh, reading some uh, Tufty? Uh, yes. Is that yes. Tufty? Tufty? Tufty. Tufty. Yes. Tufty. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I guess a couple years ago when I started getting into like data visualization and dashboard design, I just kind of jumped into the Tufty books. Mm -hmm. um, I also read a couple books by Stephen Few, who is has really good opinions on uh, information design and dashboard design. Mm. I can't name the books, the title of the books off the top of my head, but mm. if you search for him on any bookseller site, uh, you will probably see all of his um, dashboard books. Gotcha. Like, what what are your sort of like core uh, 
you want to get into doing more data visualization and in the browser type resources. For information design, I really like uh, Tufty and Stephen Few. Um, I really like flowingdata.com, which is just kind of this aggregated site of really cool data visualizations on the web. Hmm. It's really good for inspiration, um, just kind of seeing what people are analyzing, um, how people are visualizing data. Hmm. Sites like you know New York Times and 538, which do a lot of data-driven journalism, I think are really interesting as well. Especially like on 538, not there's not a lot of data visualization charts, but they do post like their data sources online, and you can kind of see that storytelling aspect. Um, you know, kind of finding like a story in the data and being able to express that, and that's kind of a different way of visualizing data, which I think is really fascinating. Um, kind of turning data into, I guess, prose. Yeah, totally. You just jogged my memory of a thing that uh, the Denver office did. <laughs> recently which or fairly recently which is analyzed uh like a year's worth of our um campfire logs yeah that was partially my fault i feel like it's um are we allowed to talk about it this much on the yeah, go ahead. okay um so basically we analyzed how many bad words were used mm-hmm. or a certain bad word was used and mm-hmm. certain phrases and it led to some interesting conclusions like the person who used this particular word the most uh had been in, in the company maybe like I think a year and a half at that point or two, mm-hmm. two years. So yeah. it was pretty impressive that he was able to like beat out people who've been at the company since like, I guess, seven, five years ago, five years ago. Yeah. So um, that so was, was really like five years of logs you guys yes. went through. That's yes. cool. <laughs> um, there was also a huge spike in uh, these bad words um, after our summer summit, after our like yearly retreat. Um, like the first time we all met each other and then we went back to work that huh. following Monday, there was just a huge spike in people using bad words in the chat room. I wonder if that's like there, people like suddenly felt more comfortable because they had just met each other. I think so. I, I think that that could be it. That's interesting. Huh. It's so weird, like the insights you get when you start like actually analyzing data like that and like looking at it in aggregate and seeing trends yep. that you just wouldn't have gotten. I, I love the feedback that I got from everyone in the company about it. Like, People kind of still reference it here and there whenever they use said word um, to kind of joke about like getting the certificate next year. Like next year, I'm going to be the one who says the F word the most. Yeah. Yeah. And like people, I, you know, it was really cool to see that because it was like a last minute idea that we we put together, but it had such a profound impact because people like to see themselves quantified, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, totally. Um, what else should we talk about? You got a new bike well, recently. I did. Um, I got a, uh, a fixed gear bike from Bikes Direct. I think it's, it's a Kilo TT, uh, Mercier Kilo TT. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fixed gear bike, single speed. I like bikes. Yeah. Bikes are cool. That's cool. I'm into bikes all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but more recently. Uh, road bike, mountain bike, or just... Uh, uh, I, had, I had a Surly Cross check for a little while, and then it got stolen. So oh, no. Currently no bike, but I'm looking at new road bikes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you uh, do you do like long rides in Boston? Or? Not really. Uh, it's mostly like a commuter kind of thing. Mm. My longest ride is like five miles that I do like once or twice a week. No big deal. Boston's a nice town for biking if you don't. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a city, so you have to be careful about getting hit by cars. But yeah, I it's flat. I threw, yes, that's really nice. And even people who live like I don't know, I guess outside Boston city limits, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not too bad of a ride to get in. It seems. Mm. Yeah. Have you used uh, Map My Ride? I have. Yeah. There's like data visualization for you. It's just, it's surprisingly uh, satisfying to like see your route on a map and like get mm-hmm. like an analysis of it, like your pace and your elevation climb and all that. I'm just going with the data theme. <laughs> Play, or just work with me here. 
Okay, all right. Uh, yes, it's really cool. Actually, I, I've been doing a bit of closure. Uh, I've been playing a lot with Overtone, which is, you know, kind of totally different from our data theme mm-hmm. of this podcast. That's but fine. So what is Overtone? Overtone is a closure library used to generate music and sounds. You can basically kind of create these synthesized sounds. Um, you could also play MIDI as well, like generate. Um, there's like different sound libraries and sound banks. Like you can download a piano sound and basically play these notes with Clojure. And actually, uh, I have been using it with Emacs, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, How's that I'm going? Not a, uh, Emacs is, I, I'm mostly in evil mode, um, but mm-hmm. it's integration with the Clojure REPL is pretty seamless. Yep. I've had good luck with Fireplace, but sometimes when things get disconnected or things don't work the way that I expect them to, it's a little harder to debug, debug mm-hmm. in Vim. Yeah. I, I, back when I used to write common lists for a little while, I was using Emacs just because of, of that same reason. The integration is just impossible to beat. Yeah. I've been using Emacs a lot for uh, just writing documents just because I love org mode a lot. Mm. Um, I've never used org mode, but I hear people rave about it. They're insanely positive about it. Basically, you get to format your text in your editor and things just look nice. But it's also because it's just text. I mean, it's pretty light. So I, I really enjoy org mode. Um, so I've been kind of switching back and forth from Emacs and Vim. It's been a little complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good though. I mean, I, I like that philosophy of sort of using the tool that fits for the job and not being too uh, dogmatic about it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and we sort of have like this Vim culture in ThoughtBot. So mm-hmm. it's nice to kind of go outside that and just explore other options. And that the Vim monoculture is, is having a bit of a challenge with with Emacs. There's, there's a handful of Emacsers in New York. Yes. And they've been running the uh, the New York Emacs meetup even. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, there there are other voices out there, which is good. It must be complicated, though, to pair with someone who uses a completely different editor. Yeah, I could see that definitely being a pain. Yeah. But so, then again, like people configure their Vim sometimes, or their editor so much that it's sometimes impossible for anyone else to use it. It's super true. That is a pain as well. That's the cost of customization, but I think it's worth it. I think so too. I'm very pro. Cool. Uh, anything else we should cover? Uh, dashboard design. Do you have controversial positions you want to take? It's always difficult because sometimes clients have like this specific image of what they want their business dashboard to look like because they've seen other dashboards, but they have a completely different set of data. Mm. So it's kind of like this process to kind of lead, push them in the right direction. And sometimes things that work for other data points or other types of data points don't won't work. Like for instance, certain visualizations like a line chart may not work for certain types of data, but you know, a client just kinda has this idea of like, you know, I want my dashboard to look like this. Yeah. They want a certain visual look and they don't care if it's the best fit for the Yep. For showing the data. And then I, I wrote a blog post about dials just because I Oh yeah. Uh, that was sort of sparked by I think a discussion I had with a client a while ago. Um yeah, they just wanted this gauge to kind of like with this needle to point to like a number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I sort of made the metaphor that it, it works really well for a car because like, you know, when you're driving in a car, you're not really looking at your dashboard the entire time. But when you glance down, you can see the needle moving um, in certain directions and you can kind of adjust and respond really quickly. But when you're looking at a web page, like one, you have like a lot more data points on like a dashboard than you do on your car. So it doesn't really work for a dashboard all the time. And also, like, most gauge visualizations, um, it's they kind of have these three colors there all the time. Um, they usually have, like, a green range, a yellow range, and a red range, like, and mm-hmm. red is critical. And so you're seeing those three colors all the time. So when your metric goes to critical, like, you 
may not notice that immediately. Mm. But your dashboard should be like, like the purpose of a dashboard is to basically alert you when things are going wrong and also help you keep track of all of your metrics. And, and it should be scannable. You know, yes. You should be able to respond quickly when something goes wrong. Um, hopefully things don't go wrong all the time, but you want to respond quickly. So I was, I kind of touched on different alternatives to dials. Um, Stephen Few talks about this bullet chart concept where it's, you kind of take that, the same concept of like having these ranges of good values, um, critical values, but um, basically creating like kind of like a modified bar graph. And there's good and bad parts to it. Um, the bad part about bullet charts is that most people aren't exposed to them. So um, I had a client project where I, I had this idea of like, rather than using a gauge or a dial, like I presented this bullet chart and people who've never seen it before, like when we were doing user testing, were incredibly confused. Hmm. I was a little perplexed because I had thought that this was like the better design. So we had to go with an alternative that was a little bit in the middle. Hmm. Um, so you kind of have to keep your user in mind when you're designing these dashboards because sometimes what is a bad design or a bad design choice is also familiar to the user. And so they'll actually get feedback a lot quicker. Yeah. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. And it seems like another argument for user testing. Mm, yes. Actually getting real people in there and saying like, do you understand yes. this? Definitely important. But otherwise, I think I, I think I said most things I wanted to say. Cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to the, the dial post because I think that was, that was, a, that okay. was great. I'd like to, people should read that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So uh, I think that's probably actually a good place to stop then. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, virtually swinging by. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug, like any upcoming appearances at conferences or things like that? Uh, there's the AirPair AirConf. Okay. Um, that's happening Friday, August 29th at 2 p.m., I think, Eastern time. Okay. And what are you talking about? I am giving my uh, a talk called Creative Visualization with D3. Um, it's sort of an, a quick intro to D3, and then we go into different uses of D3, just kind of moving beyond like bar graphs and just kind of playing with our imaginations and trying to be a little bit creative with data. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 112. Thanks for listening.